0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: A little while ago, we made a podcast with Dr. Mark Dawson about the Willoughby family of Nottingham, the food they ate, and how it changed over time. Well today we're going a step or two further on our 16th century field to fork journey to consider some unanswered questions. What did the Tudor age understand about digestion? And how did this affect what they consumed and the way they prepared it? Was there such a thing as healthy eating? How did people in the 16th century manage seasonal food changes and seasons of scarcity? we will also be talking Tudor recipes, cookbooks, and attitudes to meat, dairy goods, and vegetables. Our guide today is a returning guest, Brigitta Webster, a culinary historian and journalist who, as you'll hear, has made Tudor eating a way of life. Brigitta joined us early in the life of this podcast to talk about banquets, the sweet course eaten after a feast in Tudor times. Today, I'm delighted to welcome her to talk about her gorgeous new book, Eating with the Tudors, Food and Recipes. It's full of extraordinary insights that give us an idea about how the Tudors really lived, and she shares some of them with us today. Brigitte, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you back to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on again. Well, thank you so very much for having me back again.
2: It's always a joy, but also I always feel very grateful to you because you were, in fact, the first one who said, "Rigita, people
1: want to know about Tudor food. Do something about it. (laughs) And you have with this wonderful new book. Before we talk about food, though, I thought it might be nice for those who haven't come across your work and your incredible home in Norfolk, and this adventure, you know, with, like most Tudor things, some sunshine, some storms, that you are on as a way of life. Could you give a bit of a sense of where this book came from, the lifestyle that you've adopted that produced this kind of knowledge?
2: Yes, of course. Would love to. Now, this path to where we are now has actually started... mm, Almost thirty-five years ago, only I didn't know it at the time. I trained as a teacher of home economics in Austria, and that involved basically all the skill set that a tutor housewife would need. That starts from looking after children to cooking, being able to assess to minor ailments for somebody in the family, how to run a household, basically every single skill set I need. Only at the time, I didn't realise that one day this will come in very useful and turn my life around. At the same time, I've always been very interested in history. And many years ago, we bought our first property, my husband and I, in Hertfordshire, which was a Tudor property. And as a teacher, with my background, I always felt the need to share what I had learned about Tudor history, in particular about social history from that period with other people, which happened to be mostly friends. And in time, more and more people said, your knowledge, that's quite incredible. And so I started to live more and more like a Tudor, just to put what I'd learned to the test. And I think that whole experience was crowned by my husband and I purchasing a smallish Tudor manor up here in Norfolk, because I was always looking for somewhere where I could invite people to come and stay and physically step Back with me into Tudor, England, and where I could entertain people Tudor way, pretending to be the lady of the house. And in my opinion, that's the greatest way to learn when you actually feel it, you do
1: it, you taste it, you smell it, you see it, you hear it. And that's where we are. The food historians at Hampton Court Palace describe it as living archaeology, testing out these theories. And in this book, Eating with the Tudors, you have distilled all that experience, all the knowledge that you've gained. And therefore, it is an amazing resource. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the introductory ideas about what food meant in Tudor society, because you explained that food history connects everything. (laughs) Can you give us some insights into how this is the case and what this means for the sort of sources you've been able to draw on for your research? The book
2: is, of course, designed to basically encourage the recreation of roughly 100 recipes following through the seasons. But it was important to me that it was not just a cookery book, I did aim for the book to act as a reference to all things Tudor food. And to me, it was also important to portray the eating habits of all levels in Tudor society. And for that, my research took me through a number of primary resources From the privy purse documents to other administrative documents concerning different levels of society. I used a lot of household accounts, wills, even probate inventories, diaries, medical advice, gift lists, and very interestingly, also import tax. Being here in Norfolk, obviously we have lots of primary source regarding the strangers that came and brought their food with them. But to fully understand and appreciate and value the importance of food to people of all walks of life in Tudor, England, I did include in my book the original recipes as well as obviously a modern version for it. When we talk about the primary sources, I obviously had to go through all the original manuscripts that we still have available in this country. And it was important to me that they were in the English language, that they were written here in England for English people, because you can understand that there are obviously lots of 16th century related documents everywhere, especially in Europe. But to me, it was important. It was going to be a Tudor-focused one. And every recipe I use dates from between 1485 to 1603. So I was very strict with myself on that. And I think there are actually 15 books, if I remember correctly, 15 manuscripts or cookery books that fit that period that I used. But we mustn't forget that these cookery books were mostly aimed at the better, the well-off members of society. So that included nobility, but also the merchants, increasingly so in Elizabethan time. This was a very growing group of people who were more and more influential because they had the money. And in Tudor England, you wanted to flaunt your wealth. You wanted everybody to see you've made it. And this was the class that had the money, the funds, to purchase food, which clearly signalled to everybody else how much money they had. And that in itself created a major problem, And it's really that whole background why food in Tudor England changed so much between its early beginning to the final years. There are obviously many reasons for that and a rapid increase. In the middling class, so what we refer to as society in the middle, basically, they were single-handedly responsible for a lot of problems that they caused. And one is they wanted to put meat on their table because meat was seen as the food for the wealthy. Now, a merchant who was very successful, therefore, would put more meat on their table to show to himself, his family, and the people around, all the influential people that they could afford it, they made it. But the problem was that it did cause a kind of shortage in meat. And we know when there's a shortage of a very popular product, the price increases. And that's exactly what happened. Meat got so expensive that people at the lower end were more and more cut out of that market, and there wasn't enough alternative food available to fill that gap. And so we do see something as close as a famine in England in the 1590s, and it was mostly felt up in the north in a region we know as Westmoreland and Cumberland. But the very fear of people having to starve at the bottom end because not just meat, but also bread became so much more expensive. Also because that time, unfortunately, coincided with bad harvests. You can imagine, you can see what's happening. And in a way, I often compare it to what's actually happening to society. At the moment, there is more and more a cleft between the lower end and the upper end. And I find it just fascinating, yes.
1: Talking about that idea of social hierarchy and food, could we touch on the laws which governed consumption? Did cookery books play to these rules?
2: Obviously, any government and the Tudor government did the same. They wanted to control everything. They wanted to keep order and in their way, it was carried out by coming up with what we know as sumptuary laws. Now, most people associate sumptuary laws with restrictions on what you could wear and which fabric your clothes are allowed to be made of and which colour you can wear. But it also applied to food. And here it was the exact number of dishes you were allowed to put on your table during any dinner. But a dish was not just a plate full of food, a dish could mean a whole huge bird like a swan. And according to your hierarchy, you knew exactly how many dishes you were allowed. And I think the lowest class who was affected by that regulation was anybody who earned more than £100 a year. Underneath these laws weren't necessary because people didn't have so many different dishes to come up on their dinner table. It was more likely to be just a plain affair of pottage and bread and perhaps a bit of cheese on top. The interesting thing is that therefore encouraged hosts to invite people of slightly higher standing than themselves, because if you had a guest that was of higher standing, you could then adjust your sumptuary law to that person. So therefore, that was an opportunity to offer more than you would normally be accustomed to. And obviously, that meant a lot to them, or it must have, because the rule was also constantly flaunted. And because they reintroduced slightly different versions of the sumptuary law all the time, we can guess that people weren't very good at
1: (laughs) obliging. Another sort of basic principle I think would be helpful for us to understand is how the Tudors understood what we might call the science of eating. How did they explain digestion and what did this mean for how food should be eaten and when? Right. This is all down to
2: what we call the humus. This was a principle that was first invented by a Greek physician, in antique Rome by the name of Galen, and Galen concepted this idea that the human body was made up of four humors, four bodily fluids, by the name of blood, phlegm, yellow and black bile. And in order to remain healthy, you had to balance those four fluids. And to go about that, you could do different things because it depended on so many things. It was a science in itself, but basically it depended on what gender you were, what age you were, your profession based on your physical activity, the weather, the season, which country you lived in. So you see a lot to balance. Now, it's quite interesting because England was considered to be disadvantaged when it came to the humours. Because Galen, having been down in southern Europe, he never experienced cold climates. So all his humours and how to balance them are based on the climate in Italy, basically. Not very useful for Indian, but Northern Europe was understood to be cold, and therefore there are a lot of exceptions to the rule. The best way to explain how the humors and the balancing with food works is by giving an example. So we know that my body consisted of those four bodily fluids, and funny enough, so did every food item had those humours, which then had characters. And the characters could be cold, wet, warm or hot and dry. And a lady of my age, for instance, based on my gender, being a woman, being old, I know that the characters of my humours will be dry and hot. And therefore, to me, I would have to balance those humours out by eating food that was cold and wet. Now, for me, therefore, food like cucumbers, which were cold and wet, would be ideal. You can very clearly see that those four humours are nicely balanced. The problem starts when it gets then very cold, because then obviously I need to up my humours on the hotter side, and that could be achieved with spices.
1: So it's clear that the Tudors were eating correctively in some ways, that they were compensating for whatever defects they felt they had in their environment or in their body, and they were trying to balance out those humours, not only through their practices of lifestyle, but also very much through what they ate.
2: The most interesting thing is how, I mean, it had all to be fine-tuned as well. So in the beginning, during Henry VII's time, food was generally chosen on its merits to preserve health. Meaning that people were advised to eat food that merit their humours. And as I said, for me, that would have meant food of dry and hot humours. Roasted meat would have been recommended, and definitely an abstinence of vegetables, fish, and fruit. Spices too were all good for me, and also dry wine. But the significance is that. Towards the end of Henry VIII's period and into Edward's period, we do note a transition from eating food with the same humours to the exact opposite approach. So the general stance taken by health experts was then that all bodies needed constant correction, In order to prevent illness. In other words, you were advised to eat, as he said, corrective food, the very opposite of what was advised before. So in the beginning is you eat the same, towards the end you eat the opposite. And for me, therefore, that would have meant to ditch all the lovely roasts and replace them with boiled meats and the use of herbs instead of spices. And that is significant because we can clearly see a tendency away from meat-based products in the early stage of the Tudor reign towards the very end, where people clearly are moving away from just meat, which used to be up to 80% of their diet, to the inclusion of fresh salads, fruits, and herbs, was the vegetables, not just herbs as we now call them. And that's quite significant because when you start to look into the health recommendations by Tudor physicians, there is a lot of debate going on. They don't seem to all agree on the same food being good or bad for you, even on the very basics like water. We hear so very often that in Tudor times, people didn't drink water because it was considered bad for you. Well, there are lovely debates going on in Tudor England amongst the physicians. Some say it's pure and healthy And others say, well, on its own, it's a bit bland and it needs wine to increase its nutritional value. But they do not actually say it's bad for you. And looking at various recipes, they often call for fair water. So for me, it's interesting to see that there was a debate in 16th century about what food is actually healthy
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: It's fascinating to see food advice changing. We've seen that in our own lifetimes, so much so. There's always something that's now considered healthy that wasn't before and vice versa. And one of the recent trends has been towards eating locally and seasonally and organically, which are many of the things that the Tudors did. You mentioned the seasons already. Can we start looking at the recipes in your book that you have organised by season and thinking about the seasons with spring? Let's start with spring. Why could this be one of the most challenging times for food? Well, spring was surely the most challenging period
2: because... Not only is it still very cold, but it is the season of extremes. Everything was extreme. You get either extremely cold weather to very sunny, warm days. You can get frosty temperatures to sunshine. But more importantly, it's the season where you either feast or you fast, where you either eat hardly anything or just one meal a day and that had to be totally meat product free to pure luxury food for Easter when meat clearly is back on the menu and people would eat more than they need. And it was also the season that was very important to especially smaller estates like the people who would have lived here at our little manor house because they had to start to prepare for the next winter. This is the season where you started to prepare the soil in the garden. This is where you started to get the seeds into the soil in order to allow them to have months, weeks to grow properly so they are ready at the time of autumn for harvest and therefore securing your food supply for the winter.
1: And I suppose that carries on into the summer because that's the season of plenty, but you've got to make sure after that, at the sort of period we're talking, in the year, that you are making provision for those winter months when you're not going to have that abundance. Absolutely, absolutely. Even in summer, when you read through
2: estate accounts and private letters, it is always about looking into the future. It's all about preparing food, preserve food, making it last. And I think it is also one of the reasons why when sugar started to be more accessible in Tudor England, it completely took on the whole wealthy society. Because with sugar, you now had the means to make fruit last longer, where before all fruit could only be dried, and that restricts it to really just pears, apples. There are some plum recipes where you air dry them, but you had really no other means to make your fruit last for over the winter period. With the arrival of sugar, all of a sudden you can make every fruit last throughout the winter. By turning it into what we now know as jam and marmalade, then it was more referred to as conserves. But you can really get a sense of how much excitement that must have introduced to a slightly well-off the household to have strawberries in winter. That must have been like a miracle, oh my word. Usually we have strawberries in the early summer and now here we have it for our Christmas dinner. Obviously, they also like their sugar, that's for sure. I mean, who doesn't like death by sugar treats? But sugar was also considered to be a miracle cure for almost everything. And it also ran as a spice, which is interesting because, in my opinion, it's not the spice. But in Tudor, England, it was definitely referred to as a spice. Every season, except for winter, was all about preparing food for the forthcoming winter months.
1: And turning to winter, there were some foods you say that were only ever eaten during these months, and the season also dictated how food should be cooked. What can you tell us about these?
2: Yes, food in winter obviously was mostly preserved. We are talking about preserved food in salt, brine, air-dried or pickled. And some of them we still enjoy. For instance, we still have pickled herring, but food in winter in some ways has changed, in others it hasn't. For instance, we still keep our, if you have a garden, that is, you generally keep your leeks, your carrots, your parsnips out in the garden and you just go and get them when and if you need them. And that was the same in again. There are a lot of vegetables that actually quite happily survive your average English winter outside. The cheetahs were also quite good in storing apples and pears. And that's something I'm still working on because there are accounts that tell us that certain varieties of pears and apples were good to eat right until into the early weeks of April. Ha! (laughs) I've been trying this unsuccessfully for the fourth year now. I don't know exactly what they did, but I haven't given up. I've tried everything, packing them into hay and straw and turning them over. I've tried keeping them in the loft, then the mice get to eat. So I think I'm really jealous of the Tudors that they managed to do that. But because it must have been a challenge for them as well, you do see in privy accounts gifted old apples. And you think to yourself, if you don't know that, you think to yourself, Well, why would old apples be worthy of being mentioned in the privy accounts? Who dared giving the king or the queen old apples? Well, it depends on what time of year that happened. And if it was after January or February, that became quite a treat. Because as I said, I've been trying hard to make them last that long. Not that easy. So, that clearly was something quite special, even in Tudor times. And it just makes certain finds in primary sources that much more exciting when you understand the background significance of something so humble as old apples.
1: That's fascinating. Let's talk a bit more about different food types. We've mentioned meat, but I do want to come back to meat because I wanted to ask you what the hierarchy of meats was and what did the age of an animal have to do with its status or value?
2: Meat in itself was a high-status food, but there were differences within that kind of food. The highest, only really affordable and open to people with a forest, which was hunting grounds, was venison and game. In theory, you couldn't even buy venison. Even if you tried, you had to have your own hunting grounds or had contacts to somebody who owned one. So venison definitely tops the list, but all sorts of unusual Poultry was up there as well. For instance, towards the end of the century, Turkey was hailed as being something very much exotic coming from the Americas. So you do start to see Turkey in Christmas menus and given as food gifts because again, to buy it was very expensive. It always came down to the fact what was the most expensive one and the rarest item to get. And the more common things were, the more accessible that food product was to everybody, the less likely it was something that the rich and wealthy wanted to eat. The meat of young animals, therefore, was highly regarded because, A, the flesh was nice and tender, but more so because if you slaughtered a young animal, you by default have less quantity of the product, which makes it, therefore, more expensive. And the Tudor's did really quite like their veal. Veal does appear a lot. So does green geese. Now green geese have nothing to do with the colour green. It refers to really a young bird. Another one that appears a lot in recipes is poulet, which is basically a young hen that just started to lay eggs, but before she sheds her first set of feathers. So they were very specific about the age of young animals and when they were being sold to whom. One animal food that occurs very seldomly in England is actually goat or kid, which is astounding because It's one of the most popular meat on the continent, in Italy, for instance, but in England, very little. And I couldn't really find out why that is, because there are one or two physicians who do note about goat, but they don't say a lot about it. So
1: nothing significant. Could that be a religious significance, the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep being... The ones who get into heaven and the goats to one side. Very good point. That, I think, is something worth looking into. I think you've
2: given me a really good point there. Absolutely. I mean, it may be completely wrong. (laughs) It definitely makes enough sense to pursue that further, because a lot was somehow linked to religious beliefs. Even after the Reformation, we find what they ate somehow had its roots in religion. For instance, the silly thing about sausages. These days, we are so used to eating sausages. But in England, sausages only became a thing after the Reformation because before it was very much considered food of the poor Therefore, wasn't really being mentioned a lot in any cookery books, because if it was for the poor, it wasn't for the readership of a cookery book. But because Martin Luther and Zwingli in Switzerland made such a big deal out of eating sausage on Good Friday as a protest against the Catholic Church telling everybody what they have to eat and when not to eat other things, the sausage became a very popular symbol and therefore also a very popular food choice item, even for the rich, but only after the Reformation.
1: That's interesting. So We have, of course, a culture around food that, as you said, is religious and the eating of fish, huge amounts of fish consumed. I was tickled to discover that, much as the word herbs includes vegetables, fish includes animals that live on or near water. And yet, I was also really fascinated to learn the broader economic reasons for fish days, especially from the mid 16th century. Can you share those?
2: Yes, yes. We are all familiar, obviously with the Catholic lean days and fast days, which meant you were only allowed to eat fish and no meat products. But from the Reformation on, obviously, to start with, everybody was over the moon that they dreaded. Fish days were over and everybody was free to choose what they wanted to eat, when and how. However, going slightly back to this growing expansion of the middle class that demanded to be able to eat more meat, we find that at some stage the government felt threatened enough to not being able to provide enough meat to suit the demand that they felt obliged to reintroduce fish days, but not based on religious grounds, but on economical grounds. And 1548 was the year when they had to reintroduce fish days on Fridays and Saturdays to encourage people to eat more fish, because they thought maybe if we forced them to eat more fish, then that will free up a few days where we don't have to supply meat. So we now have not just what the Catholic Church said, the Catholic Church made Friday and Saturday fish days. Now, from 1563, we even have a third day, namely Wednesday, where people, by law, had to eat fish simply to save the economy. And Elizabeth had to do that constantly. In 1585, she felt they had tackled it well enough. So that year, they lifted the ban again. But only a few years later, in 1593, they had to reintroduce it because people simply, by choice, did not want to eat fish. They wanted meat because meat, they felt, was a right. It was their God-given right to eat meat, and they would, unless they were forced to swap that for fish. And it's really amazing to me. Obviously, Elizabeth also had to find a way to keep her navy somehow employed, and she thought it was a good idea to make everybody who usually worked in her navy to turn them into fishermen. So they went out fishing in times of peace. But what do you do with all that fish they catch? Mm. If there are not enough people who want to buy it, well, you have to force them. So yes, (laughs) fish days, unfortunately, were on the menu for whatever reason the cheaters had to
1: endure fish. That's why my book has a lot of fish recipes. Let's talk about dairy produce, milk and cheese and cream and butter, collectively known as the white meats, which were regarded as a low status or poor man's food, you say. But these are one of the things that over the course of this period are becoming more fashionable. Why is that? I think it's different reasons.
2: Obviously. Lard or animal based fat was available to everybody. And therefore the upper class wanted to yet again distance themselves. And so in cookery books from the later period, you see more and more recipes that actually replace the animal products, fat products like lard with butter. Because butter, obviously, was a lot more expensive because people would need to use milk to produce cheese. Cheese, funnily enough, in the early Tudor period was regarded as food of the peasants. Makes sense, really, because cheese would be something quite convenient to put in your pocket and take out on the field a slice of bread and some cheese. So it wasn't very well regarded to start with. But as soon as foreign cheeses came to England, all of a sudden the wealthier showed more interest. We had a lot of cheese, home produced cheese here in England. The most popular one with the best reputation was the Chester cheese, not just from the town of Chester, but from that region. That had the highest reputation, and some of the lowest reputation was the Essex cheese, which is quite funny in a way. So they all had a particular reputation which was a good cheese and which wasn't. Cheddar cheese, by the way, wasn't on the menu, just in case people wonder. Cheddar cheese came about in the 17th century But one cheese that I personally was quite curious about was the Banbury cheese, because it does appear in one or two recipes by that name, and we obviously know Shakespeare mentions it as well. But sadly, nobody... Produces Banbury cheese anymore, even though there is an original recipe at the British Library. So it could, I suppose, be reimagined and remade, but I haven't yet found any cheese producer who was happy to do that. But Banbury cheese, definitely one I would love to get my hands on if somebody out there makes cheese. <laughs> There were also different subgroups of cheese, hard cheese and soft cheese and green cheese. Green cheese, again, refers to young cheese, which was quickly made. There is one type of cheese that was known as Burmese cheese, and we do still have one of those readily available in supermarkets. You can get that as Derby sarge. It's basically a cheese made with juices of herbs. So it has a slightly green colour to it. So that is actually green, but it's not called green cheese. That's the spermish cheese. The longer it took to produce cheese, the more expensive it became, obviously. So soft cheese was considered to be cheaper cheese because it's quickly done, within a few days, it's ready to be eaten. Hard cheese, which takes that longer, obviously to mature, was generally the more expensive type.
1: You've obviously learned a lot along the way from your experience of recreating these recipes. And you've given us some sense of this already with the old apples. But I wonder if you can give a Just a couple more examples of the things that you have learnt precisely by doing that you would not have known just by reading these cookery books from the 16th century.
2: One that springs to mind immediately is never judge a Tudor recipe by its title. (laughs) I have recreated at least 200, if not more, recipes. Sometimes they appear to be very much alike, but I pride myself of testing every single one and then compare them with each other. And I found that often you look at the ingredients and you instantly, with a modern set of taste buds, you think, oh my word, that can't ever work. This is just gross, oh my word. But I go ahead anyway. And what I do is I don't tell my family. I don't tell them what it is. I don't tell them the ingredients. I just serve it up looking pretty. And then I let them have a go at it. And that's the best way to discover that people really like something solely based on the taste, not knowing what it actually is. The classic example was definitely the blanc manche made from fish, because it basically is sweetened fish (laughs) ground up into a paste. doesn't look disgusting, it's just a white bit of mass. And I will never forget my husband saying, oh that's unusual, But, you know, it's very interesting. I do like it. And with every spoonful, it actually gets more and more exciting. What is it? And that taught me that the Tudors knew a lot more about which taste combinations work than we do. We pride ourselves having this magnitude of tastes coming in from the whole world to provide us with a palette of different tastes. The Tudors had to achieve the same with a much more limited palette of food products. Very limited indeed. And yet it is amazing how different each recipe tastes. And I can honestly say there was only one recipe ever where I decided, no, I need to revisit that another day, that as it stands, we can't eat. And I know it's me getting something very wrong because the Tudors knew what tastes nice. And I think it's a common misconception that the Tudors ate ghastly gross, horrible food. It couldn't be further from the truth, to be honest. And anybody who has had an opportunity to taste some Tudor food here, they all say the same. They say, it's really awesome. It's unbelievable that this tastes so nice. And I think that's my mission, and that's what I've learned, to never judge the Tudors based on what we think We know. And that's why food history is so exciting because you discover for yourself that we've been very wrong and judgmental. And it's time to stop that and open a new page and give the Tudors their place in
1: good food. Well, finally, then, I want you to whet our appetites with one of the recipes you love the most. Ah. a
2: difficult question, because it changes all the time. Because Tudor food is so much seasonal. Every season provides, for me anyway, a favourite recipe. But now with autumn on the doorstep, my most favourite recipe would probably be a particular pie made either with apples or pears and oranges. And that, to me, is the world's best fruit pie ever. I don't think there is any other fruit pie out there, modern or historic, that beats that one. So I'm really looking forward to making that again and
1: treating everybody to it. Well, Thank you so much for talking to me about food. Of course, it's made me very hungry, except perhaps not for the fish blancmange, but I'm going to trust you on that and your husband who said it was worth eating. But this book is fascinating because it combines this meticulous research that we've heard about today with these recreated recipes, which you have tested, which we have photographed here, which we have outlined for people to cook. So those who are thinking, what can I do with my love of the Tudors? Where can I go with this? The answer is obviously a Tudor dinner party. And for that, you need a copy of Eating with the Tudors. But if you don't want to make it yourself, which you really ought to try, but if you don't want to, Brigitta also runs the Tudor and 17th century experience at her house in Norfolk. So you could go and get her to cook them for you too. Brigitte, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute joy as ever and really wonderful to welcome you back. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott, my producer Rob Weinberg and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors.